You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 29th of August 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. Awkward is, is one word, and, and, and surreal is definitely another one. I mean, we're, day after day and week after week, we have new unfolding developments, which are kind of like, okay, we're in a completely different place. Joining me for today's news panel is the journalist and broadcaster Joy Ladico, and Steve Crawshaw, policy director at Freedom From Torture, and the author of several books on political protest. We'll discuss Boris Johnson's move to ask the Queen to suspend Parliament, and ask whether it means a no-deal Brexit is now inevitable. We'll also examine how the Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders is hoping to address what he calls a crisis in US journalism. And we'll look at the value of Prime Minister's questions in Britain, Australia, New Zealand and Canada. And... With workwear a recurring flashpoint in the gender debate, details on Japanese Airlines' upcoming uniform update are timely. For the first time in the company's history, female cabin crew will have the option to wear a trouser suit. The latest fashion-forward view from Monocle's editorial floor. I'm Ben Ryland. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the program. I'm joined today by Julie Dico and Steve Crawshaw. We'll start today here in London, where news broke today that the Prime Minister has asked the Queen to suspend Parliament from early September, substantially cutting the time left for MPs to prevent a no-deal Brexit. Uh, Joy, did we expect this? Well, we the, the, the current Conservative government under Boris Johnson has been playing two lines which uh, one is the idea that it's going to hold a snap election and the second is it's going to prorogue parliament. Um, Their central core, in a sense, have been trying to kind of obfuscate which move they were going to make in order to confuse the opposition. The request to prorogue parliament is somewhat surprising in that what it's done is taken in the recess and expanded it by another week. Uh, It is also completely clear that the opposition will be uh, galvanised together by this particular move and there will be uproar about it. The thinking is, um, well, they won't be a, the, the opposition won't now be able to stop no deal being taken off the table um, because they won't have time to enact that legislature. The point about prorogation is it's the end of a parliamentary session. You get a couple of weeks off, you come back and then you do a Queen's speech setting out the legislation for the next uh, session of parliament. That will get debated on October the 21st. And what Boris Johnson does not seem to have calculated is that even if he does get his prorogation from the Queen, um, that Queen's speech is itself amendable and therefore his problems will, if he thinks he's delayed them, will in fact all come back in full force merely 10 days before he would like us to leave the the European Union. Uh, To put it in politely British terms, it sounds like a very awkward time ahead. Uh, Steve, I'm, I'm interested to know what your thoughts on how this is all going to affect the Queen. Of course, there's lots of legal uh, issues that we'll get to in a moment. But whatever happens, the Queen's way forward here is going to be ultimately seen by some as as politically motivated, isn't it? It's weird, yes. I mean, awkward is, is one word and, and surreal is definitely another one. I mean, we're, day after day and week after week, we have new unfolding developments, which are kind of like, OK, we're in a completely different place. 
the UK has always prided itself. The constitution is this kind of unwritten thing and people have understandings and conventions. And of course, now it's being massively tested. We talk a lot about the Queen in politics. I think actually there will be ways that she will manage to more or less sidestep some of the politics. I think that, you know, it is cliffhangers at the end of each episode. I mean, today's includes the fact we have very senior um, Tories, including the former Attorney General Dominic Grieve, who admittedly has always been clearly strongly anti-Brexit, but saying in terms, I will vote down to bring down the government of my own party. I mean, these are times we haven't really lived through. So I think there's lots more cliffhangers in those episodes to come. And if there's only one thing that most people agree on is that they don't actually want the Queen to get involved in the politics. And so it's both in the palace's interest, but also in the politicians' interest not to, not to force her to be out there. What's, what's a slightly unanswered question in this is whether the Queen is obliged to take the advice of the government ministers or that of the Privy Council, which is a sort of slightly randomly selected group of uh, senior parliamentarians who go in to advise her. Uh, and one obviously will be advising one way and the other group may well be advising in a completely different direction. Um, something that's been raised on this programme before is the Canadian prorogation of 2008 when a minority government uh, was facing a no-confidence vote and the Queen and the uh, Governor-General, uh, the government asked for a prorogation and the Queen did in fact grant that prorogation but with a stipulation that the Parliament had to return by a certain date. So that is one way of the Queen not frustrating the will of the government, but also demanding um, that they do in turn turn up uh, in order to carry out the legislation they're meant to be doing. Mm, it's interesting because even that sort of step right now would be seen by some as the Queen getting involved somewhat in, in politics, given that the time frame left for this negotiation to take place is really part and parcel when it comes to the politics, right? I mean, the whole point of this is that there's only a limited amount of time. So if the Queen does say you need to do this by a certain time, that's still her being involved, no? Um, yes and no. It's Her Majesty's Parliament. So she has to, you know, the, the MPs are there to represent uh, the constituents and she is there as a sort of overarching umbrella of the whole thing. So I think she does have a right to say my Parliament should sit. I mean, if she doesn't, at that <laughs> point, we get back into a kind of Charles um, Charles I situation where, you know, she's essentially saying Parliament can be dissolved for the will of one person or another. Um I mean, this is what I mean. This is as Steve says. It's you know, it's 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 it becomes very tricky because of the fact that we don't actually have a constitution, but it also means things are infinitely flexible. Um, I would say that I she would be asking the question: Are you sure to Boris Johnson quite a lot, recognizing that what happens in the space of the next two months in the UK sets. Uh, it, 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 it creates a turning point in British history about how our government functions and we've always played essentially by these unknown rules of cricket and uh, he seems to be playing rugby at the moment just trying to get the ball over the line regardless of what's in the way and she will say I think you'll find we're a cricketing nation <laughs> Well speaking of that <laughs> flexibility uh, Common Speaker John Burko has said today that it's blindingly obvious that the purpose of prorogation now would be to stop Parliament debating Brexit and performing its duty in shaping a course for the country. Now, he called this a constitutional outrage. I mean, Steve, as far as due process goes, is this questionable? 
Well, is his phrase questionable? You know, is the prerogation? Are the, 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 the tactics yeah, I mean, involved it's questionable here? Because everyone, because everyone is, so many people are, are questioning, questioning it. it. <laughs> uh, that, so, so we are seeing definitely it is questionable in that sense. I say I, I go back to that sense which we've seen throughout the past few years of unpredictability, such as we have never seen. I mean, brilliant flowcharts have been done by New York Times had one series, but many papers have at different points during the past couple of years saying, well, if this happens, then that. If this happens, then that. And they've been very sensible and intelligent and brilliant. But if you look at any of the ones that were produced 12 months ago or even six months ago, they don't begin to get to various of the hypotheticals that we've in the meantime got to because things have changed so much in the meantime. And I feel that's going to go on happening. The, the very weird thing is that no one knows what's going to happen, including the principal. So you have Boris Johnson, who's kind of, on the one hand, clearly strategizing and his famous, slope notorious um, advisor, Dominic Cummings, clearly helping there. If we do this, we can get there. And here's the chess game. But in a different sense, constantly things are kind of coming out of the undergrowth and, and ambushing them in, in different ways. And there are so many different things, including different parties. We've had Labour Party and Liberal Democrats have been at odds with each other over possible national government unity. They can still come back. There are so many different ways that things might move mm. forward. I but think, questionable? Absolutely. I think the wonderful fact is, although the DUP has said it supports um, B- Boris Johnson's move for prorogation, the Conservative government only stands if the DUP uh, supports it. Uh, now, last time, uh, Theresa May had to promise them one billion in funding in order to secure their support. When there is a new session of Parliament, and that was meant to last one session of Parliament, new session of Parliament, they will be asking for more money. And frankly, at this point in time, they could literally ask for 10 or 20 billion uh, because it's now become so crucial to uphold that government. Just finally on this, uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, Joy, because uh, part of my thinking behind this is that the Queen seems to be, well, obviously is, very reluctant to get involved in any sort of politics whatsoever, very reluctant to take sides on absolutely anything, uh, which is fair enough, I suppose. But if you were to look at a a constitutional crisis that happened in Australia back in the 1970s, uh, there was a point where there was complete deadlock in the nation's government and the way it was operating. The Queen's representative in Australia, the Governor-General, sacked the government. He intervened, took a side on this particular issue and said, well, enough is enough. And although it is largely considered by a lot of people to be completely the wrong decision, it did put an end, it put a bookend on that particular issue. The country continued moving, everything moved on. Is part of the problem here that the person, the figurehead we have in control of the ultimate decision making here is so reluctant to be involved in any sort of decision-making whatsoever to the point where it almost renders the role worthless. Well, Lisa, I'm a great fan of the monarchy because... your alternative is a presidential system. Uh, the Queen represents almost a vacuum of power uh, and everything has to sort of revolve around her. But when you finally get to it, she never makes her opinion clear. And it's, it's almost like a kind of godlike figure. I think um, in Australia, it was Gough Whitlam and it was, uh, it was, it was. Sir John Kerr who was the, that was the, uh, governor, the general. governor general. Yes. And they they burnt their reputation by having to make by making that decision the royal family did and to this day Prince Charles gets booed in, in China in certain places <laughs> well sorry, I, I believe Australia, that uh, in the, the royal family refused to get involved whatsoever the Queen sent a letter saying oh, it's a completely domestic issue and it was absolutely absolutely up to Sir John Kerr to make well, that decision so you then have to so I think the Queen in this particular position cannot let her views be known on the subject um, and a lot of this has to happen behind closed doors and there'll be all sorts of pressure being exerted but I don't think you can then it, 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 it it will undermine the state of Britain if she does, in fact, make any sort of decision that is in any way visible. Um, 
it would be extraordinary if uh, Boris Johnson let it be known what she said. David Cameron got into quite a lot of trouble when he let it be known what the Queen had the Queen had expressed a view. And uh, there was a story in one, front of one of the newspaper, newspapers that the Queen supported Brexit, and that was supposedly <laughs> sourced to Michael Gove. And the way this sort of system of media and politics works is that uh, the people who are the leakers are the ones whose reputations fall. Steve Crawshaw and Joy Ledico there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Daniel Bage with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Ben. Hundreds of people have protested in Hong Kong to denounce Cathay Pacific after the airline fired crew members for supporting the anti-government demonstrations that have rocked the Chinese-ruled city in recent weeks. China's aviation regulator had demanded Cathay suspend staff from flying over its airspace if they were involved in or supported the protests. At least 20 pilots and cabin crew have since been fired. Two weeks ago, hundreds of protesters stormed the airport in Hong Kong, which resulted in the grounding of about 1,000 flights. The move would be in exchange for a Taliban promise the country would not become a haven for international militants. U.S. officials have not commented on the Taliban statement. Brazil's government says it will accept foreign aid to help fight fires in the Amazon, but only if it can spend the money as it wishes. It marks a policy shift by Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, who has been engaged in a very public spat with G7 leaders and in particular his French counterpart, Emmanuel Macron, in recent days. And today's Monocle Minute reports that some of the world's largest and most famous urban areas are struggling to sustain their growth. The blame lies with a lack of affordable housing and the rise of short-term lets in those cities. For more on this, do visit monocle.com minute. Now back to you, Ben. Thanks, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Ben Ryland here with Steve Crawshaw and Joy Ledico. We'll turn our attention to another crisis now, this one affecting journalism. Just two companies are in control of 60% of the entire digital advertising market. No prizes for guessing which ones they are. It's Google and Facebook. Now, it's no secret that the dominance of digital giants has had an almost apocalyptic effect on print media. And with it, journalism is struggling. U.S. presidential candidate Bernie Sanders says he's got a plan that will help correct the dramatic imbalance that's seeing the kind of journalism that's crucial to democracy fade away, all while profits for some continue to soar. Now, he's promising an immediate freeze on big media mergers, such as the recent CBS Viacom deal, until there's a better understanding of what such concentration of ownership is doing to democracy. What do we make of this idea? All of the ideas that he puts forward and some of the analysis, you know, there's lots of problems that we know are there. I have to say, I personally feel deeply uncomfortable with some of the stuff that he's saying, which is kind of on... It affects journalism and media more generally, and which are, you know, often in, in quite a difficult space at the moment. And one of the striking things, to be honest, about US journalism at the moment is actually how large chunks of it have stood up really well. We have a president who seems to have no respect for freedom of media at all, who talks of them as enemies of the people and, and, and so on. And yet they're standing up pretty robustly, as indeed in different ways the judiciary has stood up for its own independence. So for me, it's a slightly odd and uncomfortable way. You almost end up you know, in different ways on the side of Donald Trump. He, of course, isn't. But it's a slightly 
odd moment, it seems to me. All of those ownership things are absolutely there, but he also strings in with his analysis a kind of slightly undertone of, you know, all this establishment media, they kind of fail to um, speak truth to power, which, okay, may sometimes be true, but frankly, if you look at the kind of arguments that organizations like the New York Times or Washington Post or CNN are having with the US president in a very, very public way, that's a kind of complicated argument to make at this moment. Mm. It is the whole the whole argument is very complicated to make. Much of what Sanders has set out here seems to be about uh, maintaining the corporate structure that helps make journalism a a, a viable income or business model, I suppose. Uh, but Joy, a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the journalists at the moment have been saying that journalism ought to be considered much more like a public service. Now that's something that I didn't really see get brought into Sanders' plan here. What are your thoughts on that? Are we focusing too much perhaps on the business model side in Sanders' plan here and not enough on whether journalism is actually crucial? And if so, perhaps the problem America is facing at the moment is the absence of such something such as the BBC or the ABC in Australia, for example. Well, it has got a national broadcaster, um, which, is, which does not have obviously the same heft as the BBC. It certainly doesn't play the, anywhere near the same role in the democracy, though, does it? It it doesn't, but I, so I would, I would take issue with a, 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 a number of points. First of all, Sanders attacks um, the current media for being uh, clickbait, uh, gossip and punditry. Which now, he called, uh, he, it was quite interesting actually there, Joy, because he did call for more of what he called real news, yeah, which I real suppose news, by real, default calls the rest of it fake. Calls the rest of it fake. Now, we know where uh, we've the, heard that before. The history of uh, newspapers is that there has always been clickbait, although you didn't used to be able to click on it, um, a gossip and punditry. It's how newspapers rose and off the back of that you get serious news. A, click, a, a modern example of that is BuzzFeed that started in fact now quite a well-respected news site paid for by um, the cat memes and the jokes and the quizzes and so forth. So you need in commercial terms the fun stuff that in fact people do go and look at en masse in order to generate the hard news. Um, On this idea of uh, a a publicly funded journalism um, I think you'll find one of the great ironies is the Washington Post um, is, run, is owned by Jeff Bezos. Now, he's not Facebook, but he's one of the, you know, internet uh, giants. And he is essentially ploughing those profits back in to a newspaper. Facebook and Google have indeed extracted massive advertising revenues, which have moved away from the newspapers. However, they have become the equivalent of news agents now. They are the distributors of uh, news stories and news, uh, uh, news organisations Uh, will find a story that can now reach, rather than just who has bought the newspaper, a massive audience, and they in turn get paid for uh, that through uh, advertising and through a series of deals with Facebook and Google. So he's talking about kind of very old-fashioned kind of corporate way, of uh, 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 kind of old-fashioned leftist way of saying, you know, we the people should be in control of the media. Well, the system, in fact, has actually done wonders for certain sorts of journalism. Um, Public funding... There's always an argument about it. In fact, actually, what's happening is it, it, the things things end up levelling out. Facebook itself has acknowledged that 
unless there is fresh content and often local content, it itself cannot survive on its own model of generating advertising. So it's just invested in a huge number of local journalists to make sure there is the content against which one can advertise. Mm, it's an incredibly uh, rich and varied topic. Unfortunately, we can't dig into it as much as we would like to here. Uh, but certainly a lack of, uh, of discussion in Sanders' plan, I think, about what to do about local journalism, which is another massive issue affecting democracy, uh, certainly in the US, but uh, in many parts of the world at the moment. But finally, we must move on to Australia, which is famous for many things, sun, surf, excellent food. Sadly, however, civility and decorum in the nation's parliament does not rank among its many strengths. A new inquiry might change that. Don't get your hopes up. Uh, Australia's Committee on Procedures is looking into whether question time in Parliament ought to be reformed. Now, uh, Steve, for those who are perhaps less familiar with this quirk often associated with the Westminster system, what is question time? Well, in its idealised form, it's where the uh, ministers, including the Prime Minister, come forward and can be challenged publicly on any issue that comes up. And and it's best. It kind of begins to do that, really. It kind of hones, if you like, those debating skills of trying to get under the skin, trying to come up with the best and perfect question. And the minister or prime minister on the other side is heavily briefed to think of those questions and think of good replies. What it actually often happens, and this happens in the UK as well as Australia, is it becomes a way of throwing softball questions, doesn't begin to describe it really, but ones which are said, doesn't the Prime Minister think this, that and the other is absolutely marvellous? And the Prime Minister comes back and says, yes, yes, I must agree with my honourable friend. This, that and the other is absolutely entirely marvellous, even more marvellous than my honourable friend has just said. And then if it's a domestic national issue, that's kind of fine for both sides. And then if it's a local issue, quite often that local member of parliament will get it into his or her you know local newspaper that will have it on the front page prime minister says that initiative x now happening is absolutely marvelous so it's kind of rigged in that sense but i have to say i do in its admittedly not ideal version but i am kind of glad that it's there in some ways and and i think it's easy to fantasize about a world in which donald trump would have to face that i mean he would just completely crumble because <laughs> he has no concept boris johnson although he is extremely thin on fact is actually perhaps it's an argument against question time, he's very nimble on his feet verbally, even when there's not much behind the clever words, as it were. So that shows up the weakness. But certainly Donald Trump, I think, would be significantly exposed if it happened in the United States. Mm, Absolutely. And uh, it can get a little bit out of control. Uh, Things can get a little bit rowdy, uh, as this little clip of various different uh, question times around the world does reveal. For heaven's sake, man, go! As a party leader who has accepted when her time was up, perhaps the time is now for him to do the same. Uh, It's not my intention to hurt anyone. It certainly wasn't. It is my intention to get uh, this vote. I actually paid more tax than uh, some companies owned by people that he might know quite well. Uh, so that was various different question times around the world. That first one, I can tell you, I can recall that. That was uh, the time when uh, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister now, Kevin Rudd, was uh, refusing to come to question time. And so the opposition decided to bring in a cardboard cutout of Mr. <laughs> Rudd instead. Uh, and uh, as we as we probably know, our, our props are generally banned in question time. So that was a lot of shouting from the speaker <laughs> there. Uh, Joy, everyone says they hate question time, except, of course, uh, Steve Crawshaw over here. He loves it. Uh, but 
But uh, even even if we say that we, we really hate it, most of us probably haven't seen a whole lot of it, have we? We only really see the supercuts, the bits that are, are outrageous and entertaining. We don't really get to see whether it has any substance at all. Well, some of us are PMQ junkies, actually, and trained <laughs> to tune in to the radio at 12 on a Wednesday. Um, uh, yes, no, there are clips that go viral. I mean, one that immediately comes to mind, I think, is one of the Italian parliament where there is a, a, a punch-up just ensues. Um, no, I think we're being rude about PMQ and the formulaicness of and the and the and, and the tensions and the rowdiness, but actually it's almost like a ritual release of tensions from within Parliament. The two sides, rather than just briefing the press and talking to their own ministers, get to actually face each other on a regular basis and let off steam, push their arguments and so forth. And I, I personally would be sad if that was um, removed for something far more, you know, perhaps functional, like a prime minister actually answering um, real questions. I think that should be reserved <laughs> for uh, their meetings with the press, and uh, we should carry on the tradition. Well, Steve mentioned those questions that we already really know the answer to, and that's what a lot of people get bored with. I was speaking to uh, our political correspondent over in Australia, Karen Middleton, about this for the Monocle Minute, and uh, she referenced that in Australia they're called the Dorothy Dixes. Uh, So these are the questions. We already know the answer to them, but they're the ones that I think are are being targeted by this inquiry that's that's starting to happen in Australia at the moment. Uh, Just a final word from both of you on this. Would you be happy if we kept question time, but just ditched the Dorothy Dixes, Steve? I think it would be a great idea. I know that in Australia they've actually tried to do that and then it kind of slunk back to the previous status quo, as it were. So you do need everyone to buy in and I think that's that's challenging. Yes, of course, it'd be ideal if they went, um, but in real life I suspect it won't anytime soon. Uh, we are talking about the untamable beast though, aren't we, Joy? I mean, even if we tell the politicians no more Dorothy Dixes, Dorothy think, will come back I think they, back will st- I will st- they will still be coming along. I think, um, you know, the Member of Parliament for Cheltenham will continue to talk about the local dairy farm to allow uh, the Prime Minister to say, oh yes, yes, we've been giving, you know, extra subsidies for cows. That's just the way Parliament works. Um, <laughs> and in a sense, they're wasting their time because it's a good platform for them them to say something else, but that's the way it goes. Joy Ledico and Steve Crawshaw, thanks as ever for joining us. In a moment, we'll hear why Japan Airlines is updating its uniforms for the better. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. The Briefing, the news show that quizzes, probes and debates the news every day, just got bigger and better. Now, in a new packed one-hour format, The Briefing goes beyond the latest Twitter storm to report on the stories that are shaping your day. You need to make it a daily appointment. Hear The Briefing live on Monocle 24, Monday to Friday at 1300 in Zurich, that's noon here in London, or download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Ben Rylan. Finally, on today's programme, here's Yolene Gothan with a sartorial view from Monocle's editorial floor. In Japan, recent months have seen workers railing against company bosses who force female employees to wear high heels to work. So much so that actor Yumi Ishikawa has launched a campaign called Kutu, a play on the words Kutsu and Kutsu, and petitioned for the government to legislate against draconian dress codes. With workwear a recurring flashpoint in the gender debate, details on Japanese Airlines' upcoming uniform update are timely. For the first time in the company's history, female cabin crew will have the option to wear a trouser suit. 
Due for takeoff in 2020, coinciding with the Olympics, the company wants to smarten up in time for visitors. The uniform has been designed under the direction of Japanese fashion designer Yasutoshi Izumi. One issue that won't thrill the shoe activists, heels of up to 5 cm will remain standard, although the firm will listen to feedback. Still, at a time when Japanese companies are fielding bad press for stuffy dress codes, Japan Airlines Refresh is a fashion win. Be sure to subscribe to the Monocle Minute for the latest opinions from Midori House. That's all for today's program. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bage and researched by Yolene Gofan and Naomi Potter. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000 London time, 90 minutes from now, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bage. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Ben Ryland. Goodbye. 